Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of Sly Flourish's Lazy GM Prep. In this weekly show, I go through steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master while preparing for my Sunday role-playing game. I am running a Numenera game known as the, the Rise of the Fourth Emperor. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to get access to all kinds of exclusive material, tips for your games, free adventures, previews of upcoming products that I'm working on, video previews, and access to all kinds of other stuff. Monthly Q&A thread, Discord access. You can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. And the patrons, to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support and helping me put on shows like this. We are getting close to the end of my Numenera game. We, some very big choices were made in the last session. One of the interesting things about how my Numenera game has been going is it's been oscillating between small party exploration of places and then huge world changing decisions and this happened in the last session where they had sort of small things that occurred kind of small battles and they had to deal with and then choices choices that literally changed the face of the planet and that's what's been that's what's been happening the current issue the current situation is that the characters are right on the right on the edge of being able to destroy the fourth emperor's holdings on all of the surface of the earth they have not they don't yet have the ability to remove the fourth emperor's influence over the ocean and that is where they are they are headed to next but the big decision that they had to make in the last session was how much power and influence to give to the hex so the situation is the fourth emperor is essentially a giant synthetic otherworldly entity that's trying to take over all of earth and is doing so in a few different ways he has these things called heralds which are like really powerful artificial super intelligences he has these things called skybreakers which are giant factories that are slowly turning the atmosphere into methane he has these things called eyes which are satellites geosynchronous satellites that can drop tungsten rods on any spot on the planet and create the equivalent of a 20 megaton nuclear bomb without nuking the planet he has, what else? And he's got a massive army of these creatures known as Orgolians, which are like synthetic soldiers that he uses to sort of spread his will over the planet. The fourth emperor was on the planet many millions of years ago and was wiped out by another sentient being, kind of a being, a sentience known as the Hex. The Hex is essentially a sentient virus that can exist both in the physical world and in the data sphere, the equivalent of Numenera's equivalent of cyberspace. And it got rid of all of the influence that the Fourth Emperor had, destroyed the Fourth Emperor, and then put the world into a multi-million year, like a hundred million year dark age. And the characters have recently found the Hex and released it. So the Hex is now in the world as well. The Hex, being sentient, has made agreements with the characters that if you, I will help you defeat the Fourth Emperor now, just like I did back then, if you send me into the Fourth Emperor's universe, the Fourth Emperor comes from another universe, and I want to go into that universe. I want that universe far more than I want this one. And they tentatively agreed. In the last session, the big question, so so more recently, the characters have released an, an, an army of synthetic soldiers known as the glistening army one of the player characters is actually playing a member of this glistening army and so it's all of his siblings that were kind of trapped about there were ten thousand of them and they released them and gave them each individual sentience and individual 
choices and about 2000 of them said we're done we can't go to war we're, we're going off on our own but 8000 said yes you released us we will help you fight this war now 8000 soldiers isn't really a lot when you consider a global campaign except that these 8000 soldiers can each teleport they can each uh, shift in and out of the data sphere at will. They don't need a vertus. They don't need a vertus to go into the data sphere. They can basically shift their entire physical being into the data sphere, go where they want, and then shift back out to the real world. Which means they can travel incredible distances very quickly, and they can fight both in the data sphere and in the real world very, very easily. Much better than anybody else can. So the characters released them and said, "These are like our shock troops. We can send them into places that we don't want to just nuke from orbit, but we also can only nuke from orbit." one third of the planet two thirds of the planet have four other satellites these eyes so the big choice is well do you want to destroy those four other eyes which you can do which means that you won't have access to tungsten rods in these places or do you want to infect members of the glistening army with the hex so that when they go up to the eye the hex can take control over the eye and then it's can be used by you through the eye to blow up facilities that you don't want to send the glistening army into because 8,000 soldiers are still only 8,000, even though they can do this teleport thing. That's not enough to destroy everything that the fourth emperor has. They will basically lose all 8,000 and might not even fully succeed in wiping out the fourth emperor from the surface of the planet. So the characters thought about it and they said, well, we'd really don't like the idea of releasing the hex even more and specifically giving the hex access to these geosynchronous satellites. And they but so then they said well what if it, so the, the the glistening army the member the, there's a, a leader of the glistening army kind of the, un, the unofficial leader is a brother uh, known as axis and axis said we can send volunteers up who will stay there and cut themselves off and never come back down again so they will be infected with the hex but they will never come back down again and the character said yeah that sounds okay we'll do that we'll send them up there we will do our dirty deed and then i think their plan is we want to destroy the satellites like once we've used them, once we've blown up all the facilities that we need to blow up, we're going to scuttle the satellites so nobody else can use them and the Hex can't use them. And the Hex is like, if you think the satellites are a weapon I care about, you're wrong because I'm a sentient virus. I don't need tungsten rods to do what I need to do. So that was a big decision. And, and there was a lot of talk about it. it was, you know, we spent like 30, 45 minutes in that conversation of do we want to do this and what are the options? When you're offering options, you want, you want to offer meaningful choices to the characters and to players. And sometimes that means you, you don't want to put up a situation and say, well, here's two options, but one of them is clearly the right one. So what you try to do is you try to make sure that if there's a good option and a bad option, that you've put enough value on the bad option that even that is a viable choice. So that when you're putting these choices out there to your players, they can actually look at them and say, well, we clearly want to do that one, but boy, that other one is really compelling. So this idea of like, do you want to have a sentient virus take over these nuclear satellites? No, of course not. But what if you can do so and you can save 8,000 of your favorite people? You know, you can save 8,000 of your brothers and sisters from having to engage in a land war if you're willing to do this. And they go, yeah, except we're still giving it to this like crazy sentient virus that could blow up everything. You say, well, what if the sentient virus says we will scuttle them after we're done so you know we can't use them anymore? And they're like, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. You've now set up two deals and they go, okay, yeah, now they're viable options. And you don't want to oversell the other one because you don't want to get to a point where now you've just turned the other one into the only viable option. 
So it's a real balance of like, how do you make sure to make these meaningful choices meaningful enough that both of them seem like good choices? Now, the other thing is this can be pretty exhausting for players that if you constantly are putting these moral dilemmas, these meaningful choices, or especially like the, the worst of or the best of two bad choices, if you're putting these like no, there is no perfect choice and everything is just which is the least worst choice that can get fatiguing. That's actually kind of a big downward beat. So you want to pull back. You want to make sure that sometimes you're just like giving them easy answers because sometimes they just want easy answers. Sometimes they're not really looking to have constant moral dilemmas in every choice they make. So I would not put too many hard choices in front of the players all the time. I don't think I would do it constantly. And instead, of course, look down in the story. What makes sense for the story? What choices make sense for the story? And then if you want to offer meaningful choices that have something, then try to add a little something to the one that seems like it would be the worst choice so that there might be more compelling reasons to choose it and then put it on the table and let the players choose what they want. I think that can, I think that can work very, I think that can work really well. So that's, that is kind of the interesting choice they had is do we want to put the hex up into these satellites or not? And it was enough that I stopped the game. Like after there was conversation and I could tell like not everybody's totally on board with whatever choices made, but people from a character perspective were kind of coming to a conclusion. And I said, let's pause for a minute. Let's break out of character as players. Are we okay with this? Are we, you know, and specifically one of the players who was kind of against the idea, are you from outside of the game perspective? Are you okay if we go from this? And she said, yeah, I'm good with it. This is great. Thank you for asking. I'm fine with the way the story is going. I don't feel like it's ruining my game. And I said, okay, great, let's go back in. And so we went in and her character is very apprehensive about the choice. But she as a player is like, no, I think this is going to be pretty cool. Like, that's fine. So I think that that's important to do. And again, there's that value of asking about using pause for a minute as a way to break out of character and to talk to the players about how the players feel about what's going on in the game. It's a great way to normalize the use of this verbal X card that you can ask the players, let's pause for a minute. And, and as a GM, you can promote it. You can say, as a GM, let's pause for a minute. How do we all feel about this situation? Let's pause for a minute. Are we okay with the level of gore that we currently have in the game? Are we okay with you know that kind of thing? You could just ask. And instead of waiting for a player to kind of hit the X card and say, I'm really uncomfortable with this situation. If you have any doubt in your mind, if there's anything in the ask in your mind where you're like, are we worried about like space clowns? Are we worried about the space clowns? You could say, pause for a minute. Is everybody okay with space clowns? And they go, I'd really rather not. Oh, okay. They're space pirates. You can change things. So as a GM, I think it's really handy to normalize the use of this idea of let's let's pause for a minute. And and the, the purpose of let's pause for a minute is a way, you, the, the way let's pause for a minute works, I've talked about this before, I'm going to talk about it again. The way that let's pause for a minute works is that at any point in the game, any player or the GM can say, let's pause for a minute. And that should break all conversations. Everything ceases. Any of the internal discussions stop. Whoever said it kind of has the floor. And they say they can bring up their issue. They can ask a question. They can get clarification on what's going on. It's not just used for like game safety. I really don't like the direction that this game has taken or I'm not really happy with it. You instead can just ask a question. I've lost track. Where exactly are we in this dungeon or what exactly is this environment like? It's a way, let's pause for a minute, is a way to break out of character and have a conversation as players and as GMs. And then when you're done, you say, okay, back, game on, and you, everybody drops back into character again. Really, really handy tool. Really handy to make sure that everybody's comfortable with what's going on in the game, but also really handily to, handy to just get everybody on track, to make sure that everybody's cool with what's going on, that they are, everybody understands what's happening in the situation in game. It's a really, really handy tool for a lot of situations. I've now been using it a lot, and I really like it. So that's, that's been very helpful.
So our beginning, let's, we, we need to prep our game. Oh, look, we already have a 21 Numenera game. I wonder why. I was, there was some reason that I did this. Uh, I guess I had a secret I had a secret and clue that I wanted to drop in. As always, we are using Notion to do our campaign planning today. If you want to learn more about Notion, there is a link down in the show notes below that includes how to use Notion and also gives a link to this Notion, this Notion campaign site that I use to keep track of everything. I really love Notion. And we start with our prep from the eight steps of the Lazy Dungeon Master with reviewing the characters. So we have six characters. I don't, I think, I think Joe is out today. So that is Jad the Shade is not in, but I think everybody else, nobody else said that they weren't in. I think Juniper, Juliet, unfortunately, she's in the process of moving. So I think her time might be really tight. So we might, we might only have four players today. We will see. So we have Biko. Biko is an intuitive jack who rides the lightning. He often plays sort of the devil's advocate in a lot of conversations. Very useful way to kind of have a sounding board of, are we really looking at all sides of this conversation? We have Cecilia, the hideous jack who wields precision with power, who is no longer really hideous. She is now a crystalline insect who can really live forever because her new crystalline form will always refresh and rebuild herself. So she, and she sent this to her entire species. So now her entire species are, are they can no longer reproduce, but they can live and they can pretty much live forever is a long time, a lot longer than they did, which before was only about 40 years. Jad the Shade, a player won't be here, is Meddlesome Jack who exists partially out of phase. Juniper, the cheerful nano who possesses a shard of the sun. Nakia, the beneficent Jack who acts without consequences, who's lately been following Cecilia and the choices that she's been making. Her, his mother is head of the Aeon Priests in Badrov. And in the last session, they liberated Badrov. So a big part of the last game was them jumping into Badrov and, and clearing it out. This is their hometown. They managed to take the city of Badrov back. And so now their, their city has returned. In fact, it might be fun in the strong start to kind of have a return to Bob. Sam G1138 is a protective glaive. He fuses flesh and steel and is one of the first members of the Glistening Army, one of the four brothers who was awakened from the Glistening Army and now doesn't lead the Glistening Army, but, but is now reunited with the, his siblings of the Glistening Army. So the strong start is war has come to the world once again. The characters are now waging a world war. Badrov has returned. I think a Amazon has been replaced with their friend. What's his name? I always forget his name. There used to be a artificial intelligent 3D printed. Yes, Terrence. Thank you. Wow. You guys know my game better than I do. Terrence. So Amazon was a, this is like a player, player generated thing, as you can tell, that there was an artificial intelligence inside Badrov. Instead of having like a store where you bought equipment, you could go to this kiosk in the middle of town and, and, and data sphere in and data, yeah, and, 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 and data cast, data cast in. And it was like that big room in the matrix with all the guns. You could walk through aisles and you could pick things out. And somewhere in the city, nobody really knows where is like a big 3d printer factory that can make the things. And then it's delivered to your door through, through AMZN prime. Uh, during the last, during the last, uh, big war with the, <laughs> with the Orgolians, they looked over and the Orgolians who have kind of gone crazy because they no longer have a, uh, sentience that's keeping control of them they're fighting them all and they look over and two orgolians are grabbing the thing and shaking it and amazon's like please that's not a, that's not the correct interface and they rip it free and it dumps shins all over the ground and they scramble and grab all the shins and run away and they're like did they just destroy amazon like that's terrible so i think the idea that terrence has now taken over for amazon 
the Amazon terminal is, is back again, I think is a, a really fun, a really fun thing. So I think seeing Badrov returned and then it comes to hard, hard choices. And this is sort of the results of the choices that they made last time. And some of these will set up a little list of some of the hard choices in the scenes. So what's going to happen in, in, in the world war, these aren't necessarily choices, is that I think a good time is going to pass, like maybe three weeks or a month. A month passes. And during that month, all across, they, they, are, they are involved in sort of commanding the glistening army, getting control of the eyes, and, and disabling the fourth emperor's hold on the surface of the planet, which is a huge deal. And they're going to get it all done very, very quickly. So stage one is arming the glistening army, the, the, the glistening army, Herald, Herald Busters. They get a, a quad core spear and a hex spear. So the first thing they do is these glistening army guys, they get a quad, the quad cores are a group of nanos that are merged together into a single entity that is able to, in the data sphere, create a virus capable of busting open a herald so that they can then enter the herald and fight a herald inside of it and then disable it. And the glistening army will have armed with the quad core spears and being powerful members of the glistening army, they will have no trouble. They, I mean, they'll probably lose people. But they they can, you know, they can do this. The 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 Herald Busters data cast into the temples of the Heralds. How many of those are there? There's probably 90 of them total. They've I forget. I think they already blew up the ones in this hemisphere. So there were about 90. We'll say 93 of them. And 62 of them remain. So 62 of them. Ah, but the, these aren't the heralds that control the eyes. There are only two more. So the, the herald busters go after the two heralds who connect to the eyes. These, Urindor and... Iverix. I'm just making up names. Erndor and Iverix are the two heralds who connect to the eyes above. So they send in their two teams to take out the two heralds, Erndor and Iverix. They do it simultaneously. Both of them fall. Both of them jump up to their perspective eyes. Those groups, eye busters, eye violence, we'll call them. The eye violence teams go up into the eyes and take out the eye heralds and then connect up the hex to the heralds. So the hex has control over the other, over the, over the four eyes. I guess there's four heralds because each, yeah. So there, there's, there's four heralds because there's four eyes. Urindor, Malavance, Reth, Retherin, and Iverix. Are they going to become eye tyrants? So the Herald Busters go after the four heralds who connect to the eyes. Urindor, Malevolence, Retherin, and Iverix. These heralds connect to the eyes above. The eye violence teams, the four, the four eye violence teams, 
right? Four eye violence teams go up to the eyes and take out the eye heralds and then connect up the hex to the heralds so the hex has control over the four eyes. The hex uses the eyes to blow up the 17 remaining skybreakers. So skybreakers are those massive factories that are slowly changing the Earth's atmosphere into methane. They will, and they can blow those, they can just shoot those tungsten rods down there and blow those things up. Then the remaining eyes, or the remaining members of the glistening army, take out the remaining and their eye busters, or their herald busters, take out the remaining 62 heralds across the planet. The eyes and the glistening army take out the remaining Orgolian factories and depots. There are 192 of them. Total losses of the glistening army are 1,438. Total non- fourth emperor total civilian casualties 830 total orgolian casualties 1,238,692 total time 27 days result the fourth emperor's forces on the surface of the planet ends are removed so that is a pretty good set of like what will happen during this world war and the characters will largely watch this then i might also do like a bit of a montage like during this month what do the characters do yeah that's that's a good thing and then i think at this point they're going to return to balarod and take the portal to the to the deep, to the city of, I think I've got my locations. I think I made these last time. The Coral, to the Coral Cathedral, the home of the Quiet Empire. And then I think their plan is to break the, what, we, I need a cool name for this. I don't know if I made one for it. Let's bring this. Look at that, that looks cool. The shield below. I didn't do anything here. Whoops. So break the shield below, which is a very old artifact that is blocking data sphere connections from the top to the, to the, from the, from the surface to the, below, to the, to the, to the deep. So they'll want to go there. We're going to, we're going to do some prep on that today and then assault on, and what's the name of the city? It has a really cool name. I can't remember. I was just thinking about it today. Klee, the drowned city. So they'll assault then, you know, final battle against the fourth emperor. And then choices. Do you release the hex into the universe of the fourth emperor or not? Finn. So I think we have a good... That's sort of the big block of what the remainder of this campaign is going to look like, I think. I think I'm pretty well said. Hey, my mom is here. Hi, mom. Welcome to my Numenera prep. 
and that's I think that's going to be the end of the campaign. I think we are I think that we are going to we are going to do this last big bit, and I think it's time to move on. So I think that that I think that that will be very cool. So I've got the big the big pieces here. I I know what we're going to do in the beginning of the session. This could take a good deal. So what are some secrets and clues? The hex is a we we already know it's like a sentient virus. It was originally a nanite made by the fourth emperor to be universal in its utility and intelligent enough talk to other uh, nanites of its type. It was too good. It was too good and ended up being its own entity with its own agenda. Can it, can it talk over the data sphere? It can talk to other copies of itself over the data sphere. The hex cannot talk over the connections between the eyes and the rest of the world. So there is a dedicated, the, the fourth emperor has dedicated communication paths that use outside technology to communicate between heralds and the eyes. The hex cannot traverse this unless carried. They can't maintain a connection across this pipe. That kind of gives a good limitation to what the hex is able to do. It also means hex released into the outside can't talk to a hex here in the world. The hex is able to disable, is, can disable, able to disable its sentience once it's served its purpose. A molecule of steel, of hex steel, can become just inert steel. Once the sentience is removed, it can no longer shift its form, and it just becomes a regular molecule. Lots of stuff about the hex. So secrets and clues about what's going on down. What's Klee? The Drowned City is one of the oldest standing cities on the planet dating back millions of years originally it is the original throne of the fourth emperor the the shield below separates the data sphere of the surface with the data sphere below one cannot simply data cast into Klee or even the below, even below or even the deep because of this construct. The shield below is an ancient Numenera created by the fourth empire as a safeguard. It must be destroyed to return the data sphere connectivity between the surface and the deep. 
So what's the situation going on down in Klee? There's probably, so the Kleeites, the fourth emperor, has armies of underwater, underwater followers known as Kleeites. Clayites. They resemble spiders and crustaceans, any other kind of cool and other weirder shapes. I can't spell. There are hundreds of them protecting the temple of the fourth emperor. Deep in an inverted ziggurat in the center of Klee is the throne, a portal to the outside, massive portal to the outside, in which Cleite nanos draw their emperor into the world. Yeah, it gives us that gives us some straightforward stuff. So locations, we have Badrav, we have Balarad. I don't know if I have, I do have a thing for Balarad. I should give this a better name. City of the Jade Colossus. We have Coral Cathedral, home of the Quiet Empire. We have Klee, the drowned city of Klee. And we have the shield below. Those are some good locations. I'll tell you, like, isn't it great? Like you create locations in your little Numenera card or Numenera cards in your notion cards. And then when you're building your fantastic locations, you just link to them. And I've got them all right here. Like Badrav, I just go boop, you know, and you could do this in your home prep too. Like if you wrote up a location, like on a big five by eight index card, and you just had one that kind of had your key notes about that location, you could file that away. And then in your notes, you could be like, that's my location. And it's in this card. So you can do all this physically. By, by using like index cards and stuff like that. Or if you put it all in a journal, you could have like a page in a journal that's just for Bodrov and then give it a page number and then link to your page number. Use an index. Indexes are useful. So G Blaster, hold up. Are there five by eight index cards? There are. They're really great. You can pack a lot of information on a five by eight index card. Marker. So I've got, I've got my locations. I got my secrets and clues. I've got my scenes. I got my strong start. I've reviewed my characters. So what NPCs do we have? We have a lot of NPCs. We have Cassandra. We have Maeve. We have Cucuccio. We have Terrence. We have, who else? Rabbit. We have Axis. And we can change Axis's name now. Give him some leader of the glistening army commander commander of the glistening army we have navro burham navro and burham and we will call them the wanderers of above and below i like to give everybody like a name like a title you know terence like the explorer amazon of badrav and it helps in your notes because it gives you like, oh yeah, that's who they are. It really helps to like give titles to people. I'm a big fan of giving titles to NPCs, titles to locations, give them like two or three word descriptions that kind of describe them and put them in your notes kind of everywhere you're doing it. Because 
your players will remember them. It's easier to remember their names if they remember what they are, what they do, or what their connection is. It sounds cool. It's got that sort of Dark Souls-like, interesting, fun title. It also, in your notes, directly tells you that little quick summary about who somebody is. So if you if you don't remember, it's really, really handy to just give titles. So you have Cassandra, the facilitator, Maeve Jacobs, the Aeon Priest, Cucuccio, Winter's Edge Cavalry, Terence the Explorer, Amazon of Bodrov. Rosalind Rabbit, communication, communi- you know, the comms of the hive, right? We'll just call her comms of the hive. And we'll call her facilitator of the quad cores. Really handy to just have little ties. Same thing for locations. You have Bodrov, the Queen's Plateau, Balarod, City of the Jade Colossus, the Coral Cathedral, home of the Quiet Emperor, the Drowned City of Klee, Throne of the Fourth Emperor, the Shield Below, Datasphere Blocking Numenera. So each of them have a little title, and it's just a great, I, I really like it. It's a great way to. Uh, really a great way to, to, to get your hands around everything. So monster-wise, I don't think I have any real special monsters. I could go through my Numenera book and kind of see, is there any cool monster that I want to drop into my underwater stuff? Well, well, we'll just do a skim of the Bestiary 3. There is like an underwater... There are underwater delving deep underground. Let's see. Let's take a look at the random tables and see what we've got here. So we have exploring ruins, table A and B, wandering through woods or jungle, plains or deserts, mountains, fringes of civilization, trouble in town. That's kind of fun. Infiltrating the fortress, delving deep underground, venturing near or underwater, exploring the night, exploring under mentions, uncovering an area where nothing should live individuals mounts or pets so we'll, we'll we'll try that near or underwater and we'll see what we get there let's get my some dice out here near or underwater we'll do like two or three just to kind of see this is good i, I feel like i already have mon- the monsters i need but you know i think it'll be fun to, to drop some stuff in here we have a 92 92 is a vimroth vimruth we will do a search for vimruth and we will go down. This is what I just learned. Vimruth. Vimruth. Bestiary 2, page 174. That is cool. Busting up through the water surface, massive Vimruth can shatter a small boat and empty the passengers. This is, this is cool. It's like a giant crustacean fifth, fish. Hungers for flesh. Burrows up from the ground. It's like a big... That, that, that's cool. I like it. We're going to use it. Vimruth. Page 174, Bestiary 2. I dig it. Let us try again. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open a new... I'm going to get the Bestiary 3 so I can have the random table in one and the index. Boy, I really, you know, it would be so cool if it had... Like, I don't know why it doesn't, but in here, having the book and the page number would have been really great <laughs> instead of having to look it up in the index. But it's very handy to have it in an index. I like it. It's it's okay, but it's like I got to look at two different pages. So we have a 87. Transov, uh, transvenous. There it is. D1. Or that's, what is that? That's Discovery. It is a Numenera Discovery. Hang on. I don't have that book open. Oh, look at that thing. Writhing mass of tendrils. Creature from another world that hunts cellular material to consume. I like it. This is good. I'll use it. This one looks like it's above ground, but I don't see any reason why it couldn't be below ground. 
or un underwater. Two, uh, this is Discovery, page 257. That's cool. Let's do another. 49, Mezzamim. I think I've seen these before. Mezzamim is DI, which is, which one? That's Discovery, right? DI and what's the other one? DE. I think the Mezzamim is the one that uses like heads. Yeah, I've used this one before. We've never used it for this one. It's a crustacean that uses like humanoid heads. That might be a fun one. It uses like humanoid heads that call out to you and then you come over and then it eats you. It's pretty nasty. Discovery page 242. The other one was Destiny 242, wasn't it? The Travis Ull? I think I got it. I think I got it wrong. So those are some fun monsters that we could use. I think I think that that's pretty cool. Treasure-wise, I don't I'm not, I'm not going to worry about it too much. We'll roll on the list. So I think that I think that that's good. But let's let's so I think in summary, like taking a quick look and asking myself, do I feel good about where things are going? Oh, you know what I forgot to do? I was, I've, uh, yeah, and I've only got like a couple of minutes, so we're gonna have to figure this out. Let's figure out a map for the shield below. So the shield below, we were gonna call it the watershed. Yeah, I think we'll stick with shield below. Let's go to Dyson Maps. Let's find a Dyson map that works for this place. The idea of this is it's an ancient construct that in the center of which is a way to control this huge device that blocks the reach of the data sphere down here in the ocean. And so we would want a map of like a cool location that blocks this sort of thing. And any of these, you know, like any of these sort of dungeon maps work fine. Like this, this three-story dungeon map here could kind of work. That might be kind of fun. I'm just kind of skimming through. My thought is I always go and I just search from the top to the bottom. His new maps are up top. And I just search through till I find a map that I'm like, yeah, that's good enough. That'll do. This isn't so bad for... These maps might work well for the city of Klee, maybe, if they wanted the city of Klee. I've used a lot of these maps. This one's kind of cool. It's big. It's a great big map. Maybe Vault of the Shadow Lich. Who doesn't love that? That might be a good one. It's it's really big. This one's not so bad. I like that. Frog Tower. So I think I think these are good. So do I want to use this guy? Probably not. This guy, awfully big. But they don't need to explore the whole place, right? They just need to get into the center. That could be, it's pretty cool, but it is big. Like, am I ready to run a great big, do I want to run a big dungeon? You know, I don't know. Or a slightly smaller and this case, like this would go up. And then I, I think I like this other one. I think I like the Lich one. It's big, but I think it could be really cool. The problem is like, I'm not filling out that whole room, but we'll copy it and we will figure that out. probably next time. It's going to work. It's going to paste in. Okay, we'll grab the URL. Embed. Image cannot be loaded because it's too big. Create bookmark. So, yeah, I mean, like, can I, the question is, using a map like this, can I improvise this entire place? And maybe, because, like, you know, how many chambers are in this? There must be 30 chambers in here. And no way do I want to spend the time of filling out 30 chambers when I don't really want them to spend too much time navigating this place at all. So I'll, I'll, I can already see that there's like a couple of different potential entrances. There's under, sort of on that right-hand side, there's underground 
natural passageways that have been carved into the thing that they can use to sort of access the back of the chambers. There's also the front chambers, which are probably guarded by Cleites. And and then, you know, where the, 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 the apparatus, the Numenera is in the center of the location. So they have to somehow make their way into the center of the location. So either path that they take can get them there. I, I could key rooms if I want them to slow down. If I, if I want them to have to take some time, I could certainly move some keys around so they can't get into that central vault if, unless they have the keys. And... Or, or I could just have the doors open if I wanted to go quickly. So one nice thing about running a, a dungeon like this is that you can key you can key the location and then move the keys around or remove the keys depending on how fast or how slow you want the thing to go. If you feel like the dungeon's been going on too long and everybody's bored, you can just remove the key and they can open the door. Otherwise, they could find a door and find out that it's locked and figure out that they have to get the key. Maybe the key's on the very next person they fight. Or maybe it's in the way corner of the dungeon. The key can move. You can you can decide where that key is based on the pacing of the game that you want to run. So I think I'll probably do something like that. And I can use sort of random tables to fill this out. I can sort of, you know, can I improvise the locations? Probably. It would be better if I had some ideas, if I wrote down some lists of things that they might find in this place. But I don't have time because we are we are we are out of time for our prep. So I think with that, we are ready to go. I've got, my, I've got my locations. I've got all my stuff. I've got what I need to run my game. So I feel pretty good about it. So I want to thank everybody today for hanging out with me on Twitch while I prepped my game. And I want to thank you for watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast. If you like this show and you want to help me out, you can do so by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, which gets you access to a free adventure generator plus weekly D&D related articles sent directly to your inbox. You can support me directly on Patreon and get access to all kinds of exclusive material, free adventures, all kinds of you know, special exclusive stuff, Discord channels, monthly Q&A, Patreon feeds, Patreon threads, all kinds of awesome stuff. You can pick up any of my books on the Sly Flourish bookstore, including The Lazy DM's Companion, which is now available in softcover, and, and as well as uh, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master in hardcover and the workbook in Spiralbound. You can pick up all of that right now. And you can help me out by sharing this video, sharing this podcast, telling your friends, and helping bring more people to the, the work that I do. So thank you all very much for, hang, for, for hanging out today. Have a great day, and get out there and play a role-playing game.